Amen. Good morning, church. It's good to be with you this morning. Open your Bibles this morning to the Gospel of Matthew. We're going to be in chapter 7 this morning. Um, you know, I was going to say something what I thought was clever and uh, make a comment about how Adam's t-shirt says, Best Ever Dad, and Lucas's t-shirt says, uh, Relax, I'm a Dad, and I had a handmade poster from my adult children this morning that said, I am the number one dad. And uh, all of that to say that, you know, we have it all covered. Um, but in all honesty, as we were singing and, and Kim's beautiful prayer for the students uh, really overwhelmed me uh, with the honor and the privilege it is to be able to stand up here and, and first of all, preach the word of God, but especially on a day like today. Uh, where, where we focus our, our gaze on our Heavenly Father and love our earthly fathers and miss our earthly fathers and lament um, however we need to lament anything about our fathers, but realize that our Heavenly Father is a good Father. And it is a, uh, it is a sincere privilege to stand before you this morning and open up um, this passage this morning that Sam assured me he did not manipulate the precinct schedule uh, to come to this passage on Father's Day, um, which I believe him. It just happened that it falls uh, today. So uh, we will take that as uh, God's good grace on us this morning. Um, as you're turning to chapter 7, uh, as we need to do on occasion, uh, we do need to do a little bit of recap, um, and particularly because of uh, the passage this week, like the passage last week, often these passages are taken out of context. There are two verses in this passage today that are probably two of the biggest passages, two of the number one passages or verses that are taken out of context in Scripture. So we have to look back a little bit uh, to kind of get our balance and to get our bearings of where we are in this Sermon on the Mount, and we are in the Sermon on the Mount. We're coming to the end of it in a couple of weeks, maybe I think two more, Pat, two more sermons we will be ending out Jesus' Sermon on the Mount from the Gospel of Matthew. So we need to talk a little bit about context. I'm going to go back even farther, though, than the Sermon on the Mount and remind us that Jesus is baptized by John the Baptist, and then he goes into the wilderness for 40 days. And he's tempted by Satan, and he, he holds on to, and he, he fights Satan with the sword of the Spirit, uh, the Word of God. And he comes out of that wilderness, and he begins preaching the good news right away. And what he says is, repent because the kingdom of God is at hand. The kingdom of heaven has come near. He says this in Matthew chapter four. And then Jesus begins to call his disciples to himself. He's saying, follow me, follow me. He hasn't called all of them yet, but he starts to collect his guys, his disciples, and saying, follow me. I am going to make you fishers of men. And what he's essentially saying to these men is, come and follow me and I'm going to show you what it looks like to live a kingdom life. I'm proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom of God and I'm going to show you as you follow me and I'm gonna teach you in word and action what it looks like to be members of the kingdom of God and live out kingdom lives in the midst of, as you may recall, the already and the not yet of the kingdom of God. Think back to what Sam said when he set up the Sermon on the Mount back in February was when we first started preaching through the Sermon on the Mount. This is what Sam said to set up the Sermon on the Mount. He said, we are, by the grace of God, brought into this amazing kingdom, even though we are dreadful sinners. The gracious love of God buys us entrance, and we get to do the work of building the kingdom here and now. But it won't fully happen until Christ returns. The world is used to the curse and will fight back. But the kingdom of God is worth it. It's worth it for you, it's worth it for others, and it's worth it for Jesus. And I wanted to remind us of that for two primary reasons. One is this idea that God buys us entrance into the kingdom of God. There's nothing we can do to get into the kingdom. This is all a work of God through Jesus Christ who then sends us his spirit to sanctify us. And the second thing is, is that we get to be a part of the kingdom of God. It's not that we have to. It's not that we should. We get to. It's an honor to be a member and a part 
of the kingdom of God and to live in the context of a local body of church, which is a beautiful thing to see all in one gathering, to be a part of God's kingdom here on earth in the midst of the already and the not yet. So let us walk a little briefly, I promise, through where we've been. And it all centers, my, my, my perspective in talking about this really brief recap of where we've been in the Sermon on the Mount centers on this idea that we live in the already and the not yet. And that's a tension-filled life, a tension-filled life. Tension from the outside, right? The, the world is fighting back as we are trying to live out the kingdom of God. We all experience that in, in very real ways, very aggressive ways sometimes, in very passive ways. But we also fear, we also have that tension from within, often, from ourselves, from our own sin, from our own burdens. We're caught right in the middle of this tension, you and I. In fact, part of the curse is that we are all distracted and that we get derailed in our faith and in our journey. And we need to be reminded of those two things, that we are who we are in Christ. We have to be reminded of what we've been called to because we have divided hearts. So I wanna pray for our time this morning right out of Psalm 86 that says this, teach me your way, O Lord, that I may walk in your truth. Unite my heart to fear your name. Lord, this morning as we come here, celebrating the gospel, remembering our fathers, honoring our fathers, lamenting and mourning our fathers, being perhaps even a little angry at times at our dads. Lord, we ask you, I ask you, that you would unite our hearts, your people, to fear you, to reverence you, to set you apart in our lives, Lord. Attune our hearts and our minds, Lord, to what you have for us this morning. I pray this in Jesus' name, amen. So a little bit more about this context. And again, the way I wanna look back on this is the tension. The tension specifically that Jesus seems to build into his sermon on the mount. There's, there's some real tension points in his sermon as he preaches, beginning back in chapter five, even before the, the Beatitudes. But, but it's this idea that kingdom living is hard. And Jesus tips his hand right in the Beatitudes from the very beginning where he talks about the nature of the kingdom of God and he says, blessed are the poor in spirit. The very first thing he says, blessed are the poor in spirit. And that just gives us a little glimpse of what he's going. But the kicker is in verse 10 and 11, he says, blessed are those who are what? Persecuted because of righteousness. You are blessed when they insult and persecute you and falsely say every kind of evil against you because of me, Jesus says. He's setting us up not for failure, but a reminder that there's going to be a lot of tension involved in what we're about to do. And the disciples experience that when they come down off the mountain and begin their journey with Christ. Jesus, Jesus then launches into a matter, matters of the heart as he goes through the Sermon on the Mount. But before he does that, in chapter five, verse 13 and 14, he makes an identity statement. He says, you are the salt of the earth and you are the light of the of the world. So let that light shine in your good works so people see and glorify the Father. And then he goes into this kingdom living and what it looks like. And he doesn't sugarcoat it. There's tension building in these verses. Listen to some of these verses that Jesus teaches from. He says, your righteousness must surpass the Pharisees and the scribes. He says that anger in your heart is like murder. Lust in your heart is like adultery. If someone slaps you, turn the other cheek and let them have the other cheek. If someone sues you for your shirt, don't counter sue, actually give him your coat as well. Love your enemy and pray for those who persecute you. And then the kicker of it all is be perfect as your heavenly father is perfect. There's some serious tension in those passages. And then after our verse, our, our verses this week, next week, verse 15, how narrow is the gate and difficult the road that leads to life and few find it. Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but only the one who does the will of my father in heaven. 
There's just a lot of tension there. And that's our recap. That's how I wanted to recap where we've been is this idea that Jesus is telling us what the, what the life in the kingdom is gonna look like. But he's underscoring our desperate need as we live out kingdom lives, as he teaches on the sermon on the Mount. And what this tension does is it drives us to a point where we understand living according to his teaching is impossible on our own. We cannot do it on our own. We need grace. We need cleansing. We need help. But where do we get the help from? And I want to submit to you that there's an unspoken question before our text this morning. Before he says, ask, seek, and knock, and so forth, there's an unspoken question that perhaps we should ask of the text, and perhaps the disciples asked him as well. And that question is, how do we live this way, Jesus? How do we live this way? You're digging into matters of our heart where our heart is so deeply sick and sinful that even when we're a little angry with somebody, you're saying it's like murder? If we lust after a woman, it's like we're committing adultery? Of course, all of that then points to the gospel. But the question is, how do we live this way, Jesus? And he says, ask, and it will be given to you. He says, seek, and you will find. He says, knock, and the door will be opened to you. For everyone who asks, receives. And the one who seeks, finds. And the one who knocks, the door will be opened. He says, who among you, if his son asks for bread, will give him a stone? Or if he asks for a fish, will give him a snake? If you then, who are evil, know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your Father in heaven give good things to those who ask him? And then he ends the passage and he says, therefore, whatever you want others to do for you, do also the same for them, for this is the law and the prophets. And that's our text for this morning. And I think that Jesus is answering our question. And I think that there are three things that he's saying in answering our questions. The first thing he says in answer to that question of how do we live this life is, Jesus says, sustaining life in the kingdom of God, living out life in the kingdom of God requires connection to God through persistent prayer. That's the first thing he says. The second thing he says is that what we gain from this kind of prayer life is God himself. And the third thing he says that we're gonna find out is the outflow of this type of persistent prayer life where we realize and we are staying connected to God himself is an outflow, surprise, surprise, of loving people. And so let's look at our passage this morning in verse seven. He says, ask and it will be given to you. Seek and you will find. Knock and the door will be opened to you sustaining our life in the kingdom of God requires connection to God through persistent prayer. This passage, this first verse, is about prayer. It's specifically about persistent prayer, but that's not all that it's about. That is a principle that we need to draw from this passage. Prayer, persistent prayer that's focused on God. That is it, that is the principle, but there's even more than that. The, the verbs ask, seek, and knock are, are, are in the Greek are such, such that, that they could be said and they mean keep on asking, keep on seeking, keep on knocking. And that would be correct. We are to pray continually. Paul says to pray without ceasing. And there's an order. There's an ascending order to these verbs as well. Asking implies, bless you, asking implies a conscious need. How can you not say bless you when the person in the front row sneezes and you're preaching? I mean, that's just not, that's not right. Asking implies asking for a conscious need, right? But having a heart posture of humility, knowing that you're asking the heavenly father, you're asking the only one who can possibly answer the question, answer the need. Seeking is, is asking, but it adds action. It involves effort. When you're seeking something, we rearrange our lives, aren't, don't we? And we're committed to seeking something that we're looking for. 
Many of you have probably experienced that you, you miss something, you misplace something. Maybe it's a wallet, a book, uh, a purse, something. My, my eyeglasses, I, I lost my, I thought I lost my sunglasses earlier this week. I did everything I did right away, had to drop everything, called home to see if they were there, looked at my car. I just finished driving a route, looked on my bus, they weren't there. I began to panic, but I wasn't going anywhere until I figured out where they were and they slipped on the other side of my seat between the door and the seat. But I found them, I took action to seek those glasses Seeking is asking, but adds action. Knocking includes asking plus acting plus persevering. It's like pounding on a closed door. It's like knocking on a door, which, by the way, implies proximity, doesn't it? When you walk up to a home and you're knocking, you're kind of expecting someone to be there with an earshot of that knock. When you know someone is here or close by, you knock. This is persistent prayer. But it's persistent prayer that has a result in verse eight. For everyone who asks, receives. And the one who seeks, finds. And the one who knocks, the door will be opened. It's essentially a repetition of verse chapter seven, but with an emphasis on the assurance of that asking and seeking and knocking. So we pray with expectant hearts. We pray with dependent and humble hearts on the only one who can possibly answer our request, not based on our own righteousness or our own right living, but on God's kindness to us. Prayer is not to be an afterthought. It should be the first thought and action. And as we see in this verse eight, God is so gracious to answer and he answers everyone. He answers everyone. He does not discriminate based on ethnicity. He does not discriminate based on sex or social status. He, he answers everyone. The only caveat is that we must come to the Father through the Son because he answers everyone. But everyone has also sinned and fallen short and are incapable of connecting to a heavenly Father that we have been separated from. And so we approach the Father boldly and humbly and expectantly depending on him through the finished work of Jesus Christ. These three images of asking, seeking, and knocking are, like I said, are speaking to prayer. But that's still a very narrow focus, I think, on, on what this is about. It is about prayer. It is about persistent prayer. But there's more. Because the natural question, I believe, the next question, other than how do we live this way, Jesus, is what are we to ask for, Jesus? What specifically, or are you specifically asking us or telling us to ask for something? My, my supposition, my presupposition is that the, our question of Jesus is how do we live in the tension-filled kingdom life of the already and the not yet? And then it's what are we asking for? Well, let's, let's look just at the, the general nature of these three verbs. When we ask for something, we're asking, as I said, we're asking as if another may be able to provide that thing we're asking for. We're seeking for something that's lost. And we're knocking on a door to gain entrance into that building. And what binds those three ideas together is that they are images of us venturing out in pursuit of something. And in the context of where we're at, in the already and the not yet of the kingdom of God, these three ideas of asking, seeking, and knocking are a set of images, mutually interpreting images of venturing with God. You cannot separate what Jesus is talking about here without understanding your witness with God, your presence with God, and more importantly, his presence with you. That's important. We can ask for whatever we want of God, and that's important. We should ask God what is on our heart. We should take our, our, um, our needs uh, to God. We should rush into his presence. But we should focus more on the God who answers and less on what we're asking for. And that's not easy. But Jesus' words, just a couple of weeks ago, he says, seek first the kingdom of God 
and his righteousness and all these things will be provided to you. Our primary focus in prayer is to connect to the heart of God, not to receive from him. This we know, these aren't new concepts for us. So point number one, sustaining life in the kingdom of God requires this connection, this connection to God through persistent prayer. In verse nine then, he says, who among you, if his son asks him for bread, will give him a stone? Or if he asks for a fish, will give him a snake? If you then who are evil know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your father in heaven give good things to those who ask him? The second thing that we learn from Jesus here in answer to the question, how do we live this kingdom life, Jesus? The second thing we learn is what we gain from this kind of prayer, this type of persistent, expectant, humble prayer. What we gain from him is God himself. And so our understanding, our understanding of who God is becomes really, really important. This is a verse of absurdity, a comparison between us and God, right? If sinful beings, redeemed, yet still broken, prone to sin of the flesh, you who are evil, he says, know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will God desire to give his children good things? Jesus doesn't say this to belittle parenting. Quite the opposite. He's speaking of the goodness of God. He's speaking of the readiness of God to provide as our good father. And that's one way we see God's goodness is his readiness to give us what we ask for. But there's two more ways I think we see God's goodness. We see God's goodness in his common grace. You who are evil, which includes all of us. Even when we're, de- we're redeemed, right? We're still living in the flesh and we have, we have opportunities and sometimes we take them to do things that are not, not good things. They may be evil things. They're bad things. But even people who are far away from God, Even people who would not say they believe in Jesus Christ and are in rebellion against him can sometimes, we can see in them the imago Dei, the image of God, the way they what? The way they love their kids, the way they are kind, the way they are humble, the way they are selfless. We all know people who are not believers, who are some of the kindest people in the world, in some ways kinder than some Christians that we know. That is God's common grace on them. That is God's common grace on mankind. And that is a beautiful reflection of who he is. God's common grace. It shows his goodness to mankind. But the primary we see God's goodness here is in this idea of good things, which is a very broad category. What do we make of this? What do we make of good things? Well, my prayer life, perhaps like yours, there's a difference often between what I believe are the good things and what God says the good things are. So what are they? What are they good things? Can we know this? Can we know what Jesus is talking about when he says the good things? Does this passage tell us? I think it does in part. We have to go elsewhere to kind of see it. There's a parallel passage in, in the gospel of Luke in his re- account of this, uh, of this teaching of Jesus in, verse, uh, in chapter 11. Uh, the gospel of Luke says this, for everyone who asks receives, for the one who seeks finds, for the one who knocks the door will be opened. What father among you, if his son asks for a fish, will give him a snake instead of a fish? Or if he asks for an egg, will give him a scorpion? If you then who are evil know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will the heavenly father, listen, give the Holy Spirit to those who ask him? What do we make of this? What do we make of the difference between good things in our passage today that came out of Jesus's mouth and the Holy Spirit that Luke records Jesus is saying? Well, I can't say it any better than uh, one of the commentators that I, um, I read from this week. Uh, the last couple of weeks, you're, familiar with, you're probably familiar with John MacArthur. He has this to say, and I'm just going to quote 
uh, John MacArthur in this, because I think this gets to the very, very crux of the heart of God and what he thinks or what he means when he says good things. MacArthur says, to those who ask for a gift, he gives the giver. To those who ask for an effect, he gives the cause. To those who ask for a product, he gives the source. To those seeking comfort, he gives the comforter. To those seeking power, he gives the source of power. To those seeking help, he gives the helper. To those seeking truth, he gives the spirit of truth. To those seeking love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control, he gives the producer of those things. The indwelling Holy Spirit is the source of every good thing in the Christian's life. And he concludes by saying, in a word, we ask for a gift or a good thing. And our heavenly father graciously gave us the giver, the spirit of Jesus Christ. Praise him, he says. To that, I would say, you can ask for whatever you want from God. And we often do. And that's not wrong necessarily. But remember, you already have what you need before you even ask for it. And so a connection with God is vital. A connection to God is important. And if you are a believer, understanding that you have the giver himself within you puts all of the asking, all of the questions about what are good things to rest, in my mind anyway, because you already have what you need and that brings perspective to our prayer life. So what we see about God is both his common grace that we see in creation, and we see this particular grace where he calls a people to himself and he pours out his Holy Spirit into them through Christ. Remember, church, you are salt. Remember, church, you are light. This is who you are in Christ. This is how we are to understand who God is. What we gain, again, from this type of prayer life is God himself. Verse 12 then says, therefore, whatever you want others to do for you, do also the same for them, for this is the law in the prophets. This, this is kind of like Jim's passage last week where Jim had at the end of his passage this verse, verse six, about dogs and pigs and pearls from last week's, and it seemed like a non sequitur. It seemed like, how in the world does this connect with the passage that we're talking about? This is similar. Let's talk about asking and seeking and knocking and that God's gonna provide and God's a good heavenly father and oh, by the way, whatever you want other people to do, uh, do the same as they would do for you. This is the law and the prophets. Like, what, what? What does that mean? Well, we have to talk about the, the word therefore that of course we need to ask why it's there, what it's there for. Because point number three is the outflow of this kind of prayer is that we're connected, the outflow of this kind of prayer is that it's connected to loving people. The first word, therefore, right, talks about, uh, this is basically Jesus's application. But what, is it, what does it point back to? What does the therefore in this passage point back to? Whatever you want others to do, do the same to them, for this is the law and the prophets. Is it just pointing back to the beginning of our passage this morning, verse seven? Maybe. Is it pointing back to uh, perhaps verse one in chapter seven? It might. Or, or does it link all the way back to the beginning of Jesus's sermon on the mount and encompass his entire teaching? Or does it go back even farther than that? Jesus repeats in verse 12, again, this, this phrase, law and prophets, Jesus repeats that here, something that he said also way back in, ver, in chapter five on the Sermon on the Mount. And it's that phrase, the law and the prophets. But there's something interesting going on when you compare chapter five's law and prophets and chapter seven's law and prophets. Back in chapter five, just after Jesus gave this identity statement of you are salt and light, but before he talks about the sinful human hearts, Jesus says this, he says, don't think I came to abolish the law and the prophets. I did not come to abolish, I came to fulfill. In our verse today, he says, therefore, whatever you want others to do, do also the same for them, for this is the law 
in the prophets. So, so the question then is, what does it mean when Jesus refers to the law in the prophets? Well, in Luke's gospel, again, Jesus clearly states it this way. He says, these are my words that I spoke to you while I was still with you, that everything written about me in the law of Moses, the prophets, and the Psalms must be fulfilled. And then he opened their minds to understand that the scriptures, Old Testament, New Testament wasn't around yet, helped them to understand the scriptures. He also said to them, this is what is written. The Messiah will suffer and rise and the, rise from the dead on the third day and repentance for forgiveness of sins will be proclaimed in his name to all the nations beginning in Jerusalem. So the clear implication, the clear focus, the clear point is that the law and the prophets point to Jesus. Everything in the Old Testament is a foreshadowing and a pointing to Jesus Christ. But in our passage today, Jesus says that the law and the prophets are summed up by treating your neighbor as you want them to treat you, or as he says in Matthew later on, loving your neighbor as yourself. So which is it? Does the law and the prophets... Does the Old Testament point to the sufficiency of Christ to where we have to repent and believe the gospel to be saved? Or does the Old Testament point to loving our neighbors as we love ourselves? Which just seems like works righteousness to me. Which is it? Because we can get caught up in thinking that loving people well earns us the right to get into heaven. But Jesus says it's repenting and believing in the gospel that actually gets us into the kingdom of God. Loving your neighbor as yourself. Treating your neighbors as they would have you treat them. Also called the golden rule. Maybe some of your Bibles has that headline. It's a good moral teaching, isn't it? Loving others as they would love you. Every world religion would espouse that comment loving others as you love yourselves. Pretty much everyone would. They would say that's a good teaching. Love others as you love yourselves. The answer to the question, which is it, is both. Here's the reason. Because treating others how they want them to treat you points us to Christ. And how is that? Because what the other world religions don't teach us is that we all break it. We all break that law. We want to, because what you hear them say, and I heard it in an interview this week with Charlie Daniels, the great theologian. The Charlie Daniels of the devil went down to Georgia. Yes, that Charlie Daniels. They asked him who he, who he was as a man. He goes, I try to live by the principle, love others as I love myself. He tries. That's usually what you hear associated with that. I try. The thing is, they don't understand and they don't admit, I fail at that constantly. And so this points us back to Jesus because we all break of it. None of us love others as we love ourselves. The point of the Old Testament isn't behavior modification, isn't to get you to treat others better. It is a good moral teaching, but it's to show us that we cannot live this way, that we don't live up to this principle, and it's a problem. We are all hypocrites. We need to be rescued from our sin the sin of pride, the sin of selfishness. And this should drive us to our knees in prayer, to where we continually ask and we continually seek and we continually knock, pleading with God, our Father, to continually transform and change our hearts, that he would align our hearts with his so that we would love others well. And God is our good father to answer that prayer. Indeed, as we have heard, he's already answered that prayer through his Holy Spirit. Jesus says to actively seek God, to beg God, to give us patience to love our difficult neighbor, to seek the Lord in the midst of our trials, to seek the peace that surpasses even our own understanding to seek God in the midst of our outbursts of anger and to ask him for self-control and gentleness. Persevere in this kind of prayer and pound the door of God's heart who is close by to answer that prayer because he will answer. He will listen to us. 
in your prayer life, in, in your everyday, ordinary prayer life, sometimes we go a little bit deeper and sometimes we ask God the question, perhaps you ask this question, God, what are you up to? I'm asking you, I'm praying for something or someone, a circumstance, perhaps it's the salvation that I prayed for for a very long time for someone in my life, a friend, a neighbor, a child. Maybe it's something that I really feel that this good thing is something you want for me but you're not answering. I'm not getting any kind of answers from you. Do you ever wonder what God is up to at times in your life? Well, what he is up to is he is transforming you. He is conforming you into the image of Jesus. Back in Matthew 5, when Sam was preaching on the meaning of the law, Christ and the law, he said that for those who are in Christ, the law of God is a gift. It's a gift that points us to holiness, and to spiritual maturity. And that's what we're asking for. That's what I think Jesus is saying we need to be asking for here. We need to be asking for, we need to be seeking after, we need to be knocking to gain entrance to when we pray for God to grant us help in our pursuit of holiness and spiritual maturity to be like Christ. In the midst of living in the already, but the not yet of the kingdom of God. I think that's what Jesus is getting at. I wanna go back and say something though about loving your neighbor as yourself because I think this is really important and I don't think we talk about this very much. And here's why I say this. Every week typically at the end when I give the benediction here at Emmanuel, I say the words that we pray that you experience the love of Christ pouring out or pouring into you so that when you leave the love of Christ would pour out of you. It's our simple way of communicating the greatest commandments. Loving God, pouring in, and loving others, pouring out. We say that every week. But I think there's a missing ingredient here. And I think it's loving ourselves. And I want you to listen to this. I, I want, this is a little bit thought-provoking, but I want you to stay with me for a minute here. My idea, my thought, is that perhaps loving ourselves, right? We talk about Jesus pouring in, Jesus pouring out, the love of Christ pouring in, the love of Christ pouring out. Perhaps loving ourselves, though, is the filter through which the love of Christ is to flow on its way out to loving others. Perhaps loving ourselves is the filter through which the love of God flows on our way out, on its way out to love others. And here's why I say this. I think we fall into a couple of different camps when it comes to loving ourselves. We can love ourselves and dwell on loving ourselves too much, and that's just selfishness. And we neglect to love ourselves, we, we tend to neglect, or we tend to neglect loving ourselves, and we just try to love other people, forgetting ourselves, putting our needs aside, because we know as believers that's what we're supposed to do, right? That's what we have to do rather than that's what we get to do as living kingdom lives. We neglect ourselves to love other people. We know that's supposed to be a hallmark of our faith. But I think even for the believer, there can be an element of self-hatred in neglecting loving ourselves. If we don't learn to love ourselves, loving others becomes burdensome. If we don't love ourselves, loving others becomes legalistic and frustrating and we will fizzle out. Because what happens is we get caught up in attempting to use others that we love to validate us and to pour back into us to give us self-worth instead of the loving God pouring into us first. And that's what is to identify us. That is what is to fuel us, the love of God, our identity in Christ you are salt, you are light, he says. Go, go and love others as a reflection of God. So I think that we need to learn to love ourselves well because I really think that that's a missing ingredient on a lot of our faith journeys. I think we neglect it and I think it's to our own detriment and I think it's to the detriment of others. Now we don't typically think this way because we think we're to be humble and that would be right. We think we're to be selfless people of God and that would be right. We think that we're to be loving God and loving others and that would be right. But loving ourselves, Jesus seems to think it's important. 
because he says it to love others as you love yourselves. It's part and parcel with loving others. But we do it from the overflow of God's love for us. And that's our point today, is loving others out of the overflow of God's love, loving ourselves first, though, and letting that love flow through the love of ourselves. There's a second century monk called Bernard of Clairvaux that some of you have probably heard about if you're taking the Emotionally Healthy Discipleship class. He was a second century monk that wrote a book, wrote a, a work called Loving God. And he said there are four degrees of love. The first degree of love is loving ourselves for our own sake, which is just selfishness, as we've said. The second thing is, he says, loving God, the second degree of love is loving God for his gifts and his blessings. That's also selfish. The third degree of love is loving God for himself alone. Getting closer, loving God, connecting with God on a deep level. Some of us need to do that more. That's been my sincere effort the last couple years is to really try to understand who God is. And the fourth degree of love that Bernard of Clairvaux says, the highest degree, is loving ourselves for the sake of God. The highest degree of love for, for Bernard was simply that we love ourselves as God loves us in the same degree, in the same manner, and with the very same love. We are to love the self that God loves the essential image and the likeness of God that he sees in us through Christ that has been damaged by sin, yet redeemed. Here's what I think we need to get. Church, God loves you. He loves the messy you. He loves the broken you. He loves the selfish you. He loves the addicted you. He loves the I have a ton of baggage in my life you. God loves you as you are right now. In fact, Christ died for you while you were still a sinner. You didn't have to get yourself together. You didn't have to present yourself in a certain way before God actually saved you through Christ. It was all a work of God to save you and to transform you through the power of the Spirit and the blood of Jesus on the Christ, on the cross. This should be empowering to you. This should be empowering to you to deal with the you that you're thinking of right now, to deal with the pain that goes with the you that you're thinking about right now and, and says, perhaps, I can't love me. Some of you may be even thinking that God can't love the you that you're thinking of right now. But God works in the pain. And he wants to work in your pain and in your baggage. Knowing yourself, loving yourself as God does and getting healing releases you to empathize with your neighbor, to enter into his or her pain in a meaningful way and love them well, expecting nothing in return. Not expecting them then to pour into you because your identity, your cup overflows from the abundant love of Christ that God pours in you through his spirit. Loving yourself well is to understand God's love for you in Christ and then loving that, letting that love flow through you. This is kingdom living. This is living in the already and the not yet. The question is, are you pursuing God this way? Are you communing with God this way? Are you reveling in his love for you and allowing yourself to love you the way God loves you? And then letting that truth soak in deeply and letting that fuel your love for others. As we close out this morning, Chris, you can go ahead and come up. I want to put a very fine point on it this morning and ask the question, are you ignoring Christ in your doing good to others? Are you ignoring Christ in your doing good to others? Because that's just being nice. Nothing wrong with it. It's God's common grace. But you are particular people. You are salt. You are light. 
You are Christ followers. You are redeemed. God is your father. Jesus is your brother. The spirit of the living God lives within you. Yes, you're a nice person. Yes, you're a kind person. But you're a whole lot more than that. A few weeks ago, I made the verbal miscue as I closed out our time and uh, gave the benediction. And several of you were very gracious and quite quick to point out my, my mistake. And it was just at the 9 a.m. So if you weren't at the 9, you didn't hear it. Thank God. When I gave the benediction, I said, go and make Jesus ignorable. Remember that? And I said it like five times. Go and make Jesus ignorable, I said it emphatically. I was so convicted. It was so foolish. But the truth is, of course, I meant to say non-ignorable. Not ignorable. But the truth is that we have a tendency to do just that. It's possible to love others and simultaneous make Jesus ignorable. Are you? Are you doing that? And the reason that we do that often, not always, is because of a fear of man. We're afraid of what man can do to us. But the root of that fear is we neglect to love ourselves as God loves us. It's this idea of union with Christ versus communion with God. When Jesus says you are the light of the earth, you are the light of the world and you are the salt of the earth. These are identity statements, as we have said. Based on Christ saving you, your adoption as a child of God, you are united with Christ. You are united with God through Christ. It's our union with God. It's salvation. It happens one time. We're united to God through Christ one time when he saves us. And that one time saving does not go away. We can't lose it. We can't misplace it. God doesn't take it away. We have it forever. Union with Christ. Our communion with God is up to us. Our communion with God is an ongoing process involving what Sam said, growing in holiness and spiritual maturity through our understanding of who God is as our Heavenly Father, who gives us good things. And one of those good things, the good thing is the Holy Spirit. And church, if you have the Holy Spirit, how can you not love yourself like God loves you? And then how can you not let that love spill out and overflow into the world? For some of you, seeking after God Perhaps submitting to God for the first time in your life is what needs to happen. This asking, this seeking, this knocking, some commentators believe it's specifically talking about salvation. I don't know that it's specifically and only talking about that, but yes. If you feel the tug of God in your heart, if you feel and understand that I am in the pit, I am confused, the world has me in a place, I don't understand it, Maybe I'm depressed. Maybe I'm sad. Maybe I think everything's going great, but there's an emptiness inside me. Maybe you need for the first time to understand that you can be united to God through Christ by submission to Jesus as your Savior and receiving the Holy Spirit and that love of Christ that will change your life. For others, seeking after God is to better commune with the living God who loves you. And in that communion with God, that ongoing pursuit of holiness in your life, that you would love yourself for the sake of God and go and love others and make Jesus non-ignorable. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your spirit. Thank you for your love. Love that is much deeper than we understand love that is much more profound than we display. Father, help us to understand your love for us and help us to love ourselves. Help us to deal with 
some of the stuff going on in our hearts right now, to not ignore it, but to embrace it and to understand that you are the God of healing. Father, we thank you because you are a father who is good to answer these these prayers. For our response time this morning, I want to read a portion of Psalm 27, which is a psalm of David, who also was dealing with a lot of tension and turmoil and living in the already but the not yet of the kingdom of God, understanding God's love for him, but having a lot of tension and a lot of turmoil in his life. He understood in Psalm 27, he says, the Lord is my light and my salvation. He knew who he was. Whom should I fear? He knew this. The Lord is the stronghold of my life, said David. And he goes on and he says, though an army deploys against me, my heart will not be afraid. Though war break out against me, I will still be confident. I've asked one thing from the Lord, David said. This is what I desire. Listen to what it is. It's to dwell in the house of the all the days of my life to gaze on the beauty of the Lord and to seek him in his temple for he will conceal me in his shelter in the days of adversity he will hide me under the cover of his tent he will set me high on a rock what strikes me about this passage is that David says he wants to dwell in the house of the Lord all the days of his life not the day of his life when he dies and goes to be with God but today we dwell with God now because the kingdom of God is at hand and we live in the already and the not yet. So what I would ask, we're gonna spend a few moments before Jesse comes up and leads us in communion is to ask that question of yourself. How am I communing with God? Is that my sincere prayer that I wanna dwell in the house of the Lord all the days of my life? And is that starting today? Is my prayer that I want to gaze on the beauty of the Lord and to seek him in his temple, knowing that he's going to protect you. Doesn't matter what's swirling around you or inside of you. God is with you and he loves you. Church, think and pray. Ask the spirit to show you. Again, perhaps for the first time, it's a prompting of the spirit for you to enjoy God's salvation through Christ. Or perhaps it's understanding deeper that your communion with God is up to you and he will answer because he is a good father. Spend some time now thinking and praying.